The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Field Notes Brand, makers of American memo books and more, now featuring county fair editions, one for each state in the United States of America. Field Notes Brand. I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. Online at fieldnotesbrand.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills, and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on this show is the writer Dave Tompkins. You may not know it, but when you talk on your cellular phone, you're using technological ideas that were first developed for the vocoder. When it was created, the vocoder was this huge room-sized machine with huge numbers of vacuum tubes and 12-inch LPs that had to be synced up perfectly, and it was all an elaborate system to mask the voices of our allied leaders in World War II. It was in large part an analog machine, but it was also one of the first digitizations of speech. It broke down speech into its constituent parts, its uh, separate frequencies, to create the codes. The technology that was in that huge code-making vocoder in 1944, 20 or 25 years later, became a musical instrument. Before I talk with Dave Tompkins about his history of the vocoder, how to recognize speech, let's hear one of the first popular applications of the machine. This is the Wendy Carlos version of Beethoven's Ninth, recorded for the soundtrack of the film A Clockwork Orange. Dave Tompkins, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you here. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jesse. So you wrote this whole book about vocoders. Um, Do you remember the first time that you heard one? Yeah, there there are a couple of moments, but I do remember um, I was was passed out on a bed of gumballs in my neighbor's backyard after (laughs) having a couple of cans of bush beer and was awoken by the headlights of a Cadillac pulling in. And so the next morning I was restricted to my room and I had a tape of the Johnson crew, Lost in Space. And um, I remember listening to a song called Pack Jam. And it's uh, it's uh, spacious opposite, uh, space is the place, and just staring at the leaves like swirling around. It's a fall sound. I was in seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade at the time. So I don't know if that was the first time, but <laughs> that was a big one. <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of a Johnson crew. Yeah. 
so what did you associate this sound with when you were a kid? What did it mean to you? Like most kids, I, I, I grew up reading a lot of science fiction. So, um, and, and when we're reading, we're, we're borrowing somebody's voice essentially for a while, um, uh, whether the author wants us to or not. And, and, and that, that voice seemed to apply to a lot of things I watched and read, and read growing up. I remember hearing my father was, was, was an attorney and would do a lot of dictation the micro set recorder and I remember his his voice like kind of mutating at all these different speeds like um and that's sort of like a you know second distant cousin sister of the vocoder there but it was hip-hop I mean hip-hop the vocoder got me into hip-hop and essentially introduced me to hip-hop and and all those sounds were just completely new at the time like the, that voice was coming in about and synthesizers were getting cheaper and and this is part of the electro funk sound Let's talk about the history of this machine. Um, the, the first machine you write about is this thing called the Voder. Man, yeah. Tell me about the Voder. The Voder was a speech synthesizer, out, like a novelty outgrowth of the vocoder. It's, it's an enlarged phonetic keyboard um, operating you know, by operating pedals and, and keys, conveying uh, phonetic sounds and converting it into human speech. Um, Bell Labs called the Voder a conversational piece um <laughs> mailing you an elbow <laughs> to the red <laughs> so, so, um and the voters on demonstration at, at the is a huge hit uh pedro the voter um was a huge hit at the 1939 world's fair and this was this was like the latest in in a series of technologies that were attempts to recreate mechanically the thing that like the one physical thing that we saw at least as uniquely human, which was spoken communication. Mm-hmm. And our, our voices originate in the wind. So, it, it, you know, just, just ways to electronically mimic those, those sounds and to create synthesized speech is, is, a, is a big thing. It's also a way to study speech pathologies and understanding, say, you know, throat cancer or um, things of that sort. In the 1930s, this, uh, the idea of recreating speech uh, electronically or creating this weird devol- semi-devolved form of speech with like a telephone operator pushing on keys and bellows right. and so forth is, is a novelty. It's something that Bell Labs presents at the World's Fair because, you know, and, and it makes jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like making puns. It's like it's it's fu- primary function. Everyone loves a corny talking machine. I mean, we have, <laughs> we haven't we haven't uh, gotten rid of that yet. So, so. how how did that become uh, how did that become a military technology? Well, um, at the time, and this is you know on the precipice of um, of the U.S. involvement, even though the U.S. was involved in World War II before they publicly became involved in World War II. Um, Conversations between FDR and Churchill were being un- unmasked and, and deciphered in, in real time. Um, this, this inferior scrambler called the A3, which had been developed by AT&T. Um, so the NDRC, the National Defense uh, Research Commission, had been in touch with Bell Labs. The president of Bell Labs, O.E. Buckley, was also serving on the NDRC. And um, they needed an indestructible speech machine, something something that would be able to withstand German code breakers and, and eavesdroppers. Um, they got it up and running with, within a year's time, um, which is pretty incredible considering, you know, this dinosaur vacuum tube technology. Um, and they would have 12, 12 of these terminals stationed across the globe throughout World War II. Describe what these original uh, speech compression uh, uh, cryptography uh, stations were like. 
<laughs> spaceships <laughs> walking into a space. Um, they're seven, seven feet tall. Um, the, the average the average vocoder, the whole the whole system could weigh between fifty five and eighty tons. Um, they're they're often overheated. This is because it was you're using vacuum tubes and transistors and no no, no sorry pre transistors transformers. Um, things being overheated was a huge issue. So they had to have a, a massive nine foot air conditioner. To, to keep the room, to keep the temperature stable. Um, and you had two turntables, two sets of turntables in each terminal. And the turntables had to be playing. They held the code key, these 16-inch records, which were not so cryptically called Siggroove. Um, and they played thermal randomized noise. And this noise would be added to the vocoded signal, which was transmitted as subfrequencies and then subtracted at the receiving end. So two turntables in the Pentagon, two turntables in you know, Churchill's bunker, two turntables, and then ocean lighter and Tokyo Bay, ultimately, like two turntables in the vocoder and in the hull of a ship. Manila, like, and of course, you can imagine like the issues of needle skipping and being in the hull of a ship in Tokyo Bay post Hiroshima. Um, so there's a lot, I mean, it's a pretty incredible feat of technology that, that A, this thing was never compromised, but B, that they, as, as one Bell Labs guy told me, one Bell Labs engineer told me, like, I think, one of the biggest safeguards was the fact that nobody could understand how the damn thing worked. <laughs> and it was a miracle that, I mean, it's you know, something short of a miracle that they were able to coordinate all this and get it working and mobilize in, in such a short period of time. So what were, what were the first musical applications of, uh, of this technology? Well, I, that, that's an interesting question because, because Bell Labs was, they were already singing songs with it and, and, and making a uh, weird silly willy toothpaste skits and, um, and having a ball with it uh, before before they got serious, um, but they definitely realize its its applications in the entertainment realm. Um, they're shopping at shopping the vocoder at MGM Studios and in Hollywood. Um, but the first musical application, I think, was realized by Dr. Werner Meyer Epler at the University of Bonn, who would be a huge influence on on Kraftwerk. And uh, Homer Dudley, the vocoder's inventor, had given him some recordings, and Dudley had actually traveled over to Bonn after the Second World War. But then you have Wendy Carlos working with Bob Moog, and then Bruce Hack was kind of developing his own vocoder-related system called the Farad, um, which certainly sounded like a vocoder, but I don't think it was a channel band device, from my understanding. What was the goal? Like, to, Let's take, for example, Wendy Carlos, who was um, famous for... Uh, 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 his and later her experimentations with um, electronic music and creating, mm-hmm. you know, switched on Bach and and all these different sort of electronic music revolutions. Really, the person who introduced electronic music to to the world. What did she want from this technology? Like, why did why was she using it to make this music? Say in the in the soundtrack of uh, A Clockwork Orange. She first met the vocoder at the 1964 World's Fair and was completely enthralled by it and she she wanted she wanted you know this this idea of being able to superimpose the spectral envelope of one form of one sound on top of another and being able to essentially articulate that into speech and having a a singing synthesizer was you know blasphemy at the time especially a synthesizer singing uh you know some ludwig 
It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Dave Tompkins. His book about the history of the vocoder from speech cryptography device to musical instrument is called How to Wreck a Nice Beach. That title is a corruption of How to Recognize Speech. So uh, the 70s is, feel like they're this period of experimentation with this technology. They're also a time when this kind of parallel technology, the talk box, uh, comes to it comes to uh, popularity through um, Frampton Comes Alive, particularly, but uh, other means as well. Tell me what the talk box is. It's it's the one where you sing with a weird straw in your mouth, but that's about the extent of my understanding of the technology. You, you have a crazy straw in your mouth, a tube that uh, its diameter is some, a little bit more narrow than the, than the beer bong tube, I would think. <laughs> and that thing runs into a driver, and you can bypass the amp using using a diverter. And the signal you're getting from your guitar or... And so in the example, in the case of Roger Troutman and Zap, a, a Minimoog synthesizer, um, that signal is transmitted to your mouth, and you're you're shaping this into human speech. Um, and but you're not really talking when you use a talk box. You're you're almost doing a pantomime. So it, essentially, it's like it, it's like it, it, correct me if I've got this wrong. It's sending sound to your mouth, which you're then shaping with with your mouth as though it had come out of your guts. The sing- <laughs> as though it came out of your guts, um, and it well, this, yeah, you're getting the signal. The signal's coming through the t- you know you're picking it up through the tube. You become a transmitter in some way. You can pick up radio stations <laughs> through the talk box too. <laughs> Um, and, the, and the talk box is very difficult. That's why you don't hear much of it. Um, you notice when you listen to Frampton, he's barely, barely articulate. Um, I don't think he was trying that hard to be articulate. It, it was, it was an effect then that really worked. But to actually do songs with lyrics the way Roger Troutman did, he practiced. He spent a lot of time in his garage, next to a, you know, took the tube out of a meat freeze and like recited his ABCs and really had to work on you know, making a, a clear alphabet. In Frampton was so- soaking it in Remy Martin. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as he said, he'd be ready for the Remy um, <laughs> a- after his shows. Uh, and um, also, she definitely said Stevie Wonder was really important because he's using a talk bag. Um, they've been developed by Malcolm Cecil of Tonto's expanding headband. We'll have more with Dave Tompkins after a break. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. The Sound of Young America returns triumphantly to New York City on October 22nd at the Jerome L. Green Performance Space at WNYC. Join me, Jesse Thorne, my guests, including the brilliant Amy Sedaris and more, for a night of fun and laughter and good times and, I don't know, maybe some intellectual stimulation. We'll see. You can find more information about the show by visiting MaximumFun.org and clicking on our Live in New York City link in the right-hand bar. 
It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the music journalist Dave Tompkins. His book about the history of the vocoder is called How to Wreck a Nice Beach. It tells the story of the device from vocal cryptographier to musical instrument to symbol of the past's version of the future. Why don't we hear a little bit of uh, Roger and Zap? We might as well listen to Computer Love. Oh, man. When did these movements of this kind of Afrofuturism of uh, of Sun Ra and George Clinton and this relatively humanistic um, sort of Stevie Wonder, Peter Frampton thing come together and turn into electro-funk? I think, I mean, playing those Kraftwerk records at parties is a way, you know, folks want, want to emulate that sound. Let's hear a little bit of Kraftwerk. You talked to African Bombata for the book, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's a he's a pretty classic Afrofuturist. Yeah, yeah. I'd say I'd say that that's that's your guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll show him Bam um, some of the photographs of the World War II system, and you know this pretty amazing photo of two turntables in, in the basement of the the Six Sally Terminal in Guam, and he's looked at it and shook his head. You know, I knew it all along. <laughs> you know, because you know, a Bambada, listening to a Bambada set is a conspiracy, I, I said in the, in the book, a, a conspiracy theory in itself, just the, the, how, how these songs come together and where they came from and how they're repurposed into something else. And hip-hop has always been repurposing language and technology since the beginning. So the, the vocoder was like you know, the ideal man-machine for hip-hop. So the vocoder became associated in, in the early 80s with this really specific hip-hop aesthetic that was in large part about imagining a new world. And in the mid-1980s, 1986, 1987, around there, hip-hop aesthetics changed completely uh, to something that was about, you know, big break beats and uh, forceful rhymes, run DMC style, and about kind of being real rather than um, rather than this idea of creating a, a new voice for yourself, something that's like almost abstract or, or futurized. Well, I think the Kraftwerk is essentially, you know, as a part of the b-boy, the b-boy scene, or those records were, and, and the breakbeats were from from those early parties, and with the with the drum machines coming in and that hard, sort of minimal Run DMC sound, you know, suddenly it wasn't so cool to to dress up like the village people. Um, but then, but then the vocal, you know, in, in LA and in Miami, they're keeping the vocoder dream alive well into the nineties. Um, and some of that, that late, that late model electro, some of the production there is, um, way ahead of its time. Um, and it doesn't get enough credit because Miami has such a bad, <laughs> that Miami has such a bad reputation. And then, you know, Dre, Dre 
Rarely. Well, Dre wouldn't interview. I couldn't get an interview with Dre because his publicist was worried I was going to ask him questions about his vocoder days with a world-class wrecking career. <laughs> Does Dr. Dre keep his Jared Curl under his hat completely? Yeah, well, they, well, they were... And it's interesting because a lot of the early... Keeps his sequins in the dark. The G-Funk, the G-Funk producers, the unknown DJs, you know, DJ Unknown, who's another famous one, and uh, Dre and folks like that were producing these, these... You know, they did some good electro in their day, despite the reputation. Well, I think as, as long as we're talking about Los Angeles, um, one of the great proponents of uh, robot voice in music... Uh, for many years has been Snoop Dogg, who was um, friends with uh, uh, Roger Troutman before he passed, and um, whose recent hit, uh, uh, which on the radio was called Sensual Seduction, um, emulated that style. Um, let's, hear, let's hear a little bit of it. I'm gonna take my time She gonna get hers before I I'm gonna take it slow I'm not gonna rush the stroke So she can get a sensual seduction Now, in the video for this song, um, Snoop Dogg is like riding a magic carpet with some beautiful women or something like that, as I recall. Mm-hmm. But I remember that um, he, he performed it using, uh, uh, using a talk box. Um, did he actually record this song using a talk box? It, he was using auto-tune, but I think what, what he wanted to do was acknowledge Roger Troutman because auto-tune had kind of, the auto-tune craze, at, at, that, at that point, people were mistaking auto-tune for vocoder, and, and suddenly the word vocoder was, was in people's mouths and, and on their brain, the, nobody was sure what the technology was. But Roger Troutman, meanwhile, was such a, you know, also mistook, you know, the most famous vocoder to never use a vocoder, and and Snoop grew up with all you know all the early LA stuff, and and also was Zap was a huge part of the G Funk. I mean, I don't think there would be G Funk without Zap. And Snoop also, I should also, we should also acknowledge uh, Cali is active, which he did, what Snoop did with the Dog Pound, which goes back to this yeah, classic. Down. Get Cla- down, Cali yeah. is active. That's a jam. Yeah, no, it's it, and it. it um, and it was based on the song called Radioactivity by Royal Cash, which came out of Cincinnati, but was covered by Rich Kaysen, who was a major figure in early L.A. funk and electro. And I, I like, I like hear, hearing these dudes like kind of like remaking those, those classics in a way. Dave, thank you so much for being on The Sound of Young America. Uh, Thanks for having me. Music journalist Dave Tompkins is the author of How to Wreck a Nice Beach, the vocoder from World War II to hip-hop, The Machine Speaks. You can find his vocoder blog online at howtowreckanicebeach.com. That's our time for another Sound of Young America show. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music and all of our music provided by Dan Wally. Our associate producer is Julia Smith. Our editor in Chicago is Nick White. And our new intern is Leo Portugal. Welcome, Leo. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me. My actual email address that I just use, it's the one my mom emails me at, is jesse at maximumfun.org. 
I hope you'll join us online at MaximumFun.org to talk about this week's show and to check out our other shows like the comedy shows Jordan, Jesse, Go, and Stop Podcasting Yourself, the Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast, the Coil and Sharp Podcast, and lots of other great stuff on our blog and site. All online, MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Field Notes Brand, makers of American memo books and more, now featuring county fair editions, one for each state in the United States of America. Field Notes Brand. I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. Online at fieldnotesbrand.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com.